Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Simon Hall, a professor of modern history at the University of Leeds. We're going to be talking about Simon's new book, 10 Days in Harlem, Fidel Castro and the Making of the 1960s, which is available to order now from Faber. 10 Days explores the trip that Castro made to New York in September of 1960 for the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. Building outwards from Castro's base at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, Simon positions these 10 days as a foundational moment in the trajectory of the Cold War, a turning point in the history of anti-colonial struggle, and a launching pad for the cultural and socio-political transformations of the coming decade. Hi Simon, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Yeah, I'm great, thanks uh, James, yeah. So let's start off with the the most obvious question. Why did you want to, why did you decide to write this book? I guess the main reason is that I thought it was a great story. Uh, and so I thought it would be a lot of fun uh, to write about this kind of crazy trip that Fidel took to New York for the United Nations General Assembly. And also I thought it would be a really good way of exploring some bigger themes and problems that I'm interested in about the Cold War, about the African-American freedom struggle, about the 1960s. So it was a kind of combination of a story that kind of really drew me in and made me feel excited about the prospect of working on it and also a way of discussing what I think are some really interesting big questions and, and themes. And what was the the point at which you definitely thought this could be a book project? Yeah, so I think I first kind of encountered this sort of episode um, when I was writing my last book, on, which was on um, the year 19... 19- 56. And I, I wrote a little bit in that book about the Cuban revolution because uh, conveniently for me, Fidel Castro arrived back in Cuba on the um, on the grandma to, to launch his kind of armed campaign against Batista at, at the very end of 1956. So, so it featured towards the end of the book. And in the sort of epilogue to that book, I, I kind of looked ahead to what happened after that year and uh, wrote a little bit about how the Cuban revolution played out. And in the course of doing that, I encountered this, this story. And at the time, it kind of lodged into my, into my head a bit that this could be a really fun thing to, to write about. And then it was sort of there. And once 56 was done and I was thinking of the next project, I went back to it. And the more I looked at it, the more it appealed to me, the more I thought, yeah, there's enough here to, to do something. And so that was the moment when I thought, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the next story that I want to, to tell. Were there particular authors or particular texts that you found inspirational or, or instructive? Yeah, there was one book in particular that I really, really enjoyed reading. And that helped to inspire me or influence me in writing the, this book. It's a book called K Blows Top uh, by Peter Carlson. And it's a very, very entertaining book. And it's all about Khrushchev's visit to the United States in 1959. And it's a kind of a, it's a hugely entertaining and very funny read. And it made me think that writing a book about a visit was something that could be done and could be done, done well. And then there were a couple of other books that were about very concentrated periods of time uh, that I that I read before I started work on 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 the the ten days book. One of those was Catherine Meridale's Lenin on the Train, which is about uh, the journey that Lenin took from Zurich to uh, Petrograd in um, the spring of nineteen. It was in March nineteen seventeen, a crucial uh, moment in the story of the of the Russian Revolution. And then there was a book by Andrew Cohen called Two Days in June, which focused on two days, two consecutive days, the tenth of June and the eleventh of June, nineteen sixty three in the presidency of, of John F. Kennedy, which made me think if you can write a book about two days, you can definitely write a book about 10. 
And you mentioned your previous book, 1956. So your last book was with a trade press. This book is with a trade press. Was there much of a transition from some of your earlier work, which has, has come out with university presses, to working on a project that is designed for a broader audience? You know, I'd like to think that all of the stuff that I've ever written has been uh, highly readable and entertaining, but it's probably not quite as true as I would like it to be. But definitely for these um, these two books, these trade books, really was an, uh, an emphasis on on trying to make the narrative of the story as bold and engaging and exciting as possible, and to, and that that would really be the the sort of the focus of the of the project, albeit using that narrative in a way that you can then deliver you know an argument about why these things uh, matter beyond just being kind of fun and interesting to read about. The main difference in terms of in terms of how that worked out was that you know no one who picks up a trade book, or almost no one who picks up a trade nonfiction book, a history book, is interested in the in the fascinating historiographical disputes among among scholars about particular aspects of, of an argument or of a historical development or, or whatever. So the narrative uh, as it's constructed in, these, in the book is, is informed by a huge wealth of scholarship and uh, historiography, but it's kind of hidden away. The workings are hidden away. In, in, a, in, in the, the scholarly books I've written, the monographs I've written, there'd be explicit historiographical discussion. The workings, if you like, are all hidden away um, in these books. So it's really, it's the narrative that drives everything. That was the biggest difference, I think. And then another similarity between um, this book and, and your previous book, 956, is, is, is quite focused temporally. How did you decide to use that framing device and how challenging was that or what kind of opportunities did that provide for you to, to tell this specific story? Yeah, so with, with this book, with, with 10 Days in Harlem, you know, because, the, because the project is about the trip, it, it sort of made sense. It was obvious to me that it had to be written uh, in terms of in terms of the way that the trip unfolded on a day by day basis. You know, one real advantage of that is that, to a large extent, the structure is already provided. So I didn't have to spend huge a huge amount of time kind of worrying about how would I structure the book. You know, I, I knew that uh, Fidel arrived in New York on Sunday, the eighteenth of September, nineteen sixty, and he flew back to Havana on September the the 28th. Now then there's the question of what, what do you do with those days? Because there are some days where there's lots of stuff that's going on, but there are one or two days where Fidel spends most of his time um, out of sight in his um, hotel room. So then there's a challenge of what you do with some of those less busy days. Um, so that needed some working through. The big difference that I found between writing a book about these 10 days compared with writing a book about a year is that it seemed much more important to not stray too much beyond those days. So when I wrote um, about 1956, it felt a bit easier to kind of jump a bit back and forth um, and move out of the year a, a bit more often. I think because it was such a more concentrated period of time, I think that doing too much of that would have made it a bit too sort of loose and um, a bit uh, more um, amorphous. You want to focus on the on what's happening on the, on these particular days, but you know, your reader, your readers need to know some of the context about why this stuff matters. So there was a bit of a challenge about how to get that balance right between the context that's important for understanding the events of a particular day without kind of jumping out of, of a particular day and, and kind of losing that um, tightness. But I actually found it in the end, actually really kind of fun and rewarding to have such a, a narrow temporal kind of framing it was kind of, in a way, it was sort of reassuring, I suppose, to have that that very um, well-defined framework. Um, so on the one hand, you you have this quite strict 
temporal structure, but then you use that to play with other ideas of, of time. Um, and in particular, you're talking about the spaces between the 60s as the specific dates, and then also the quote-unquote 60s as this larger cultural political moment. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know, there's there's a difference between the, the decade of the 1960s, would be, which begin on the 1st of January 1960 and end on the 31st of December 1969, and then there's the 60s as this idea of a particular moment in American history, and in fact, moment in the history of the 20th century, which is associated with a whole um, array of of particular uh, phenomena. So, student protest, direct action, um, occupations. Uh, a kind of a cultural uh, loosening um, and experimentation, um, you know, all of these ideas that we associate with that particular period. And as a historian who spent a lot of time writing about and thinking about the 60s, I am quite sympathetic to the idea of a, of a, a 60s in that kind of looser sense, a kind of idea of a long 1960s, which kind of emerged in the in the middle of the 1950s with the beginnings of the of the modern civil rights movement with the Montgomery bus boycott with the emergence of rock and roll and the the seeding of what becomes the the counterculture and a sense of a kind of a generational uh, shift that's promoting a kind of a politics of protest of rebellion of of disruption so as a as a historian of the 60s i'm i, I guess i lean towards the the kind of long 60s idea of course one of the moments in in tracing the beginning of that long 60s is or are some of the events that you talk about in, in your previous book 1956 and you mentioned towards the end of that book cuba and, and and castro come into that narrative so for listeners who are unfamiliar just with the broader context of this book can you say a little bit about the events in the the years and then the months between the, the end of 1956 and castro's arrival in harlem when um, when Castro arrives back on on Cuba in start of December 1956, the landing um, on the Grammar is basically a ship a shipwreck. It's a total disaster. Um, the the majority of the 80 or so uh, rebels who are on board are killed or captured. Fidel and a few others, um, including um, his brother um, Raúl and um, Che Guevara, manage to um, survive. They escape. They regroup in the in the Sierra Maestra Mountains, and it's from there that they begin a kind of a long uh, campaign of I guess, essentially guerrilla warfare to take the fight to the, the Batista regime with the help of uh, quite a well-developed urban opposition and um, other allies. And, and they eventually triumph. Uh, I think um, I think it's the 8th or 9th of January 1959, Fidel arrives in Havana. And um, he then he goes to um, the United States. He visits the United States in April of 1959 um, as part of, a, of a, a wider tour of North America. And it's a big PR success. He gets He's greeted by huge crowds, when he visits New York, he's presented with the keys to the city. He visits the United Nations. Um, it's all a great PR success, but it's a political f- failure. Um, Eisenhower refuses to meet him. He goes off to play golf instead. He doesn't want to um, demean the dignity of the office of the presidency by meeting with this um, rebel figure, if you like. He leaves it to his vice president, Richard Nixon, to, to have a meeting with him. And sort of from then on, really, relations between Cuba and the United States deteriorate particularly through the um, late, later part of 1959 and early 1960, as Fidel's government becomes more, I don't know if it, saying it becomes more radical is the, the right word, but it, I guess it starts to show its colours in terms of its economic policy in particular. Um, that goes down particularly badly with American business interests. The US has about a billion dollars invested in Cuba in 1959, 1960. And so relations start to sour. 
as the relationship with the with the United States is getting worse, Cuba begins to move closer to the the Soviet Union and the and the, the and the wider communist bloc. Khrushchev's number two, his his kind of international troubleshooter, Anastas Mikoyan, visits Cuba in I think it's February of 1960, and is kind of you know given the big VIP treatment, the red carpet is rolled out. He's given a tour of all the main sites of the island. Spends a lot of time with Fidel. And at the end of that trip, they they sign a kind of landmark trade agreements. And so the, there's all these kind of straws in the wind, really, which are showing that Cuba is moving closer towards the towards Moscow and its relationship with Washington is becoming more and more tetchy, hostile. And so really, by the time that Fidel goes to New York in, in 1960, it's a very different reception than when he was in New York um, the previous year. He's seen as a sort of persona non grata. The, the, the US government makes it very clear that he's only there under sufferance because of the UN General Assembly. For his own security protection, they, they say that he can't leave the island of Manhattan. And he gets a, you know, a, a, a pretty rough treatment in a lot of the US press and from a lot of the American public as well. So it's, um, those two trips are a kind of a, a, an illustration, really, of, of deterioration in the relationship between Cuba and the United States in, in that 12-, 18-month period. So Castro and his uh, contingent, they fly into the US on the morning of, of 18th of September 1960, and they initially set themselves up in a hotel that isn't in Harlem. So how do we go from this initial hotel to the 10 days in Harlem of, of your title? So the first thing to say is that the Cubans had found it very difficult to secure hotel accommodations in New York. The, the first hotel that they'd secured pulled the booking once uh, Fidel announced that he was going to head the delegation and take a much larger contingency in New York than had previously been planned. And then they find it really difficult. Basically, almost no hotel, well, no hotel will put them up. Um, and eventually, the United Nations and the State Department put pressure on Edward, a guy called Edward Spatz, who's the owner of the Shelburne Hotel in Midtown, to accommodate the Cubans. And so he does, but he does so very reluctant, reluctantly. And he makes it very clear to the press that He's having the Cubans in his hotel only under sufferance. In fact, he tells the press, you know, I hate Castro. And, you know, they, they turn up at the, at the Shelburne on the, on the 18th and they don't get off to a great start. I mean, um, Spatz, to, to make it very clear that he's a, he's a sort of a 100% American patriot, um, ensures that a huge American flag is flying over his hotel. When the Cubans ask whether the Cuban flag can also be raised, he just refuses. So the relationship gets off to a, a kind of a rocky start anyway. And then at some point in that first 24-hour period, the Shelburne asks for an additional security deposit because they're worried about the Cubans' behaviour. There's all these rumours flying around that the Cubans are sort of plucking and cooking chickens in their hotel rooms and extinguishing cigars on the on the furniture and on the carpets and so on. So Spatz asks for an, an, an additional security deposit, an additional $10,000. And when um, the Cubans try to pay this deposit using a bond, he refuses. He says it looks dodgy, at which point uh, Fidel uh, calls a conference in the the hotel's satire room. Uh, You sort of couldn't make that up, really. And and then tells all these journalists, you know, about this terrible treatment and this uh, fact that um, the Cubans have been disrespected. And um, he storms out, goes straight to the UN headquarters where he um, harangues the Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, and threatens to... um, set up camp in the UN Rose Garden. Hammarskjöld starts to work the phones, becomes a kind of a travel agent, tries to find um, a hotel that will accommodate the Cubans. 
Eventually, um, he succeeds. A hotel called the Commodore Hotel offers to put up the Cubans, at which point um, Fidel tells Hamashol that they're, they're not going to go there, that um, a member of his delegation has already secured rooms at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. And so um, very late in the evening of September the 19th, they head up to the Hotel Teresa. And that's where uh, Fidel and his delegation are based for the next um, next 10 days or so. How significant is that that shift from Midtown to Harlem, the, the centre of, of African-American life in, in the United States? Is that something that's perhaps pre-planned or, or is it more a spontaneous movement? And what does that mean in terms of shaping Castro's public image within the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think the move um, uptown is, is, is tremendously significant. You know, Harlem is an area where that's um, usually kind of kept out of wider public view. When, when uh, Khrushchev was in um, the United States the year before on a, on a, a long visit, he wanted to visit Harlem. And he sort of insisted on being taken to Harlem. But his American um, hosts, they eventually relented, but they took him there, you know, very early in the morning on the way to the airport when the, the place was pretty much deserted. So it was a place that was kind of seen as off limits, I guess. And by going there to the symbolic heart of the uh, African-American uh, world, Fidel does that in order to shine a light on America's race problem and in order to identify himself, his delegation, his revolution with the cause of, the, as he would put it, the sort of humble and oppressed people of Harlem. So it's, it's hugely symbolic and causes a huge amount of embarrassment to the, to the United States and to its, to its government. The question of whether it was pre-planned, I think, is um, is a difficult one to answer. Um, certainly, the Eisenhower administration came to believe that it had been pre-planned. And uh, a Cuban diplomat called uh, Teresa Canso, who later defected, claimed that it had been pre-planned. I'm not so convinced that it was. I think there's definitely uh, clear evidence that the Cuban uh, delegation, members of the Cuban delegation, had had prior contact with the Hotel Teresa when they were trying desperately to find a hotel that would host them. And that it, it had been one of the ones that they had considered. And they might have gone there had the Shelburne not offered them rooms. And I think because there had been that prior contact, that was the kind of the seed of the idea that, that it, it had been pre-planned. The best evidence that it wasn't pre-planned is the fact that um, Fidel did not take with him to New York at the very beginning his army chief of staff, uh, Juan Almeida, who was one of the few senior Cuban revolutionaries of African descent. Uh, he flew him in shortly after relocating to the Teresa. If it had been fully pre-planned, I think he would have been there from the start. We can't say for sure, but I think it, my view is that the Teresa was on their radar. But when Fidel arrived in New York on the Sunday of the 18th, it wasn't planned that they would be storming out of the Shelburne. Famously, as, as you indicate in your book, one of the, the first people to meet with Castro at the Hotel Teresa is in fact Black nationalist leader Malcolm X. How was his meeting with Malcolm X um, significant in and of itself? And, and what might that tell us about Castro's broader relationship with the Black activist community in New York? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that his first guest is Malcolm is is telling because it, you know, it sets the tone for the whole rest of the stay, really, which is that Fidel is going to be meeting with, with troublemakers, if you like, with, with people who are in various ways pose a, a challenge to the kind of Cold War uh, status quo, and Fidel is going to be using this whole trip to be burnishing and strengthening his own um, revolutionary um, credentials. The meeting itself it becomes iconic partly because of the wonderful photographs that are taken of the two men sitting on Fidel's hotel 
sitting on his, his bed in his hotel room, clearly getting along really, really well, you know, smiling, laughing. It's clearly there's a great deal of warmth between, between them. And it's less the substance of what they talk about than the, the kind of mood music, if you like, of the, of the meeting and the images which are produced as a result of that encounter. And I think in terms of specifically of, of the relationship with um, the African-American freedom struggle, it sends out a, a clear uh, message. I mean, when, when Fidel arrives, um, um, there's already a huge crowd of people who've gathered, mainly African-Americans, uh, who've gathered to kind of witness this historic event and to kind of cheer Castro. They identify with him partly because of his because um, he's a rebel, partly because he's kind of sticking it to the uh, to the man, if you like, but also because his government, uh, almost immediately after taking power in Cuba, had acted to try to um, eliminate racial segregation from from Cuba. Passed a whole series of of laws uh, that had desegregated previously white only institutions and spaces like hotels, social clubs, uh, beach resorts, and so on, and that kind of boldness of action that Fidel had taken in Cuba, just 90 miles off the coast of the segregated South, had contrasted very strikingly with the kind of patient and incremental and gradualist and voluntarist approach that was being preached by the Eisenhower administration. And so the, the boldness of Fidel really appeals. And, and in the months before the trip to Harlem, there had been several um, uh, kind of delegations of African-Americans who'd gone to Cuba you know, to see for themselves what the revolution was was uh, was achieving, particularly in terms of of its contribution to racial equality. So, you know, the meeting with with Malcolm is about identifying the Cuban Revolution with the African American freedom struggle, but it's also about identifying identifying with this broader cause of of anti colonial activism as well. It's about a wider movement that's about ending kind of white control and white rule over people of colour throughout the, the global South. And that's something that Malcolm is also um, interested in and, and becomes increasingly interested in. Um, so that move towards anti-colonial politics and the global politics of the 60s is something that we see through Castro's relationship with figures like Malcolm and, and US-based African-American activists. But also his, his trip to the US is a really great opportunity for him to develop um, relationships or attempt to develop relationships with other global leaders. So if we start with Khrushchev, and in some ways this book is as much about Khrushchev as it is about Castro. So can you say a little bit about what happens between Castro and Khrushchev, how they meet, where they meet, and, and what that might say about the the power relationships between them as individuals and also the developing relationship between Cuba and, and the Soviet Union? Yeah, so they meet for the first time on um, the 20th of, of September. And uh, Khrushchev travels up to Harlem, to the Hotel Teresa, to meet Castro for the first time there. The, the Cubans had said that they were happy to travel down to the Soviet uh, mission on Park Avenue. But Khrushchev was insistent that he wanted to go to uh, the Hotel Teresa. He wanted to go to Harlem. He claimed there were two reasons. In his memoirs, he claimed there were two reasons for that. One, that he wanted to demonstrate very overtly his solidarity with, with Cuba. Uh, but he also wanted to draw uh, attention to uh, racial discrimination in the United States and thereby embarrass the U.S. government. I mean, the Soviet Union was very keen during the Cold War to consistently and constantly draw attention to uh, high-profile incidents of racial discrimination in the United States as a way of trying to undermine America's legitimacy as a so-called leader of the free world, particularly at a time when, in an era of, of rapid decolonization, when 
there were lots of hearts and minds uh, up, sort of up for grabs really across Africa and and uh, and Asia. So Khrushchev goes to the hotel uh, Teresa um, on September the twentieth around noon, I think it is. And the meeting in the in the Teresa it doesn't last very long. But what's really important about it is what happens when the two men exit the the Teresa because they're surrounded by this huge crowd and loads of, of um, journalists and photographers. There's a very warm relationship between them. They're they're smiling, they're beaming. They're at one point Castro kind of envelops Khrushchev in a hug. Castro is a very tall man, uh, very thin. Uh, Khrushchev is short and not thin. Khrushchev describes being enclosed by Castro. But it's very clear that, it, that they're get, they're getting on right, and that they're they're having a, a, a good time. That they're close. Uh, later that day, I think it is when um, Fidel goes to the General Assembly for the first time. Khrushchev again makes a point of jumping up out of his seat, rushing over and, and having another hug with with Fidel. So the performative aspects of the of the relationship are extremely striking and, and very clear. At one point, Khrushchev is asked by journalists whether whether Castro is a communist or not, and Khrushchev said, you know, he sort of demurs, refuses to answer. But he says that he, Khrushchev, is a fidelista. A few days later, Khrushchev invites Castro to attend a, a dinner at the, at the Soviet mission. And Fidel arrives about 40 minutes late. Khrushchev had mistook an earlier, I think it was a fire truck siren for, for Fidel's motorcade. And so was already out on the sidewalk uh, waiting. And he was kept waiting for about, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes. But he doesn't get annoyed by that. He, you know, he, he, he just brushes it off. He makes a joke of it. When Castro arrives, he, he says, don't worry, it's fine relax, we're going to have fun. He's in a very jocular mood, which contrasts very sharply with his behaviour in the General Assembly itself, when he's often extremely, um, gets cross very easily, loses his temper. This is the General Assembly where he famously uh, takes off his shoe and bangs it on the desk. But I think that the the kind of chemistry, if you like, the personal chemistry between Khrushchev and, and, and Fidel is symbolically really important because it's a very clear embodiment of the fact that the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union is becoming much more uh, close. So that relationship between Castro and, and, and Khrushchev is really central to a lot of the book. And then two other relationships which are which are worth flagging up for listeners is Castro's relationship with Gamal uh, Nasser, who's the president of the United Arab Republic, um, and then also Kwame Nkrumah for the recently independent Ghana. His relationship with those leaders seems a little bit cooler, shall we say, than, than his relationship with, with Khrushchev. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, first of all, with Nasser, I mean, you know, Nasser and Fidel are very different characters. So, I mean, although the Cubans had a huge amount of admiration, particularly over the way that he had faced down the British and the French during the Suez crisis and had rallied the Egyptians to fight to protect uh, their independence, really, from this um, attempt not just to take back the Suez Canal, but it was a pretty overt attempt to to topple uh, Nasser himself. But he's a very different character. I mean, you know, you, you see the picture of, of him and um, Fidel after meeting at the Hotel Teresa. You know, Nasser is, is slick. He's super smart. He's got these movie star looks. He looks, um, I think one of the reports said he looked like a sort of prosperous car salesman. And he just really doesn't like the Hotel Teresa. It's a wonderful building, uh, but it's definitely um, a building which is now all about sort of faded glamour. And he, he seems to complain about the kind of terrible smells and the mess. and um, it's not a very comfortable environment for him. He also, I think, according to one of his um, senior foreign policy advisors, took great offence when he presented Fidel with a gift of a, a beautiful tea, silver tea service, and Fidel had expressed disappointment in not being given a, a crocodile. Uh, I'd asked about crocodiles, and, and Nasser had been like, you know, we only have a couple of crocodiles in Egypt, and they're all in the zoo. And 
this seemed to kind of bug him. So I don't think it's that they have a, a big um, argument or divergence of ideas necessarily. I think it's they just personally, um, they don't quite hit it off. Certainly they don't hit it off in the same way as Fidel and, and Khrushchev. I think with Nkrumah, so Fidel travels to the Ghanaian mission to meet with Nkrumah, who's a, who's a big hero of his. And, and it's a sign, I think, of the esteem in which he holds Nkrumah that that's one of the few um, people he, that he goes to visit rather than have them come to the Teresa. I think the difficulty from Nkrumah's point of view is that Fidel has stolen a bit of his thunder, you know, by locating himself in Harlem and at the Hotel Teresa. Because this is kind of Nkrumah's home turf, really. Nkrumah spent, I think, about 10 years in the United States from the mid-1930s when he was studying at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. And he'd spent, I think, every summer living in Harlem, working in Harlem. And uh, shortly after becoming um, prime minister of the newly independent Ghana, he'd, he'd visited Harlem and had a, enjoyed a, a really rapturous reception. Huge crowds had lined the streets to, uh, to kind of acclaim him. And I think he, he feels a bit that, that Fidel has kind of stolen his thunder by by going to the Hotel Teresa and by lapping up the adulation of the, of the crowds. A week and a half after Fidel flies back to Havana, Nkrumah goes to the Hotel Teresa himself uh, and, and, you know, draws a decent crowd, but there's a sense that it's a little bit sort of after the Lord Mayor show, really. So I think those relationships are, are cooler. They're, they're a, bit, a bit more complicated, I suppose, than the one with Khrushchev. It's not that they do, these relationships are, are poor relationships or that they, uh, they go badly, um, but they're all part of Fidel's attempts to try to develop alliances with and to place Cuba very firmly within the kind of anti-imperialist um, camp. Throughout the book, you have all of this delightful, colourful detail. You know, you're, you're telling readers about you know, what Castro and, and his contingent are eating for dinner and, you know, specific details that really add local flavour and context. What kind of archives were you using for this? Um, were there sources that were particularly useful in, in helping to develop that, that colour? Yeah, so there was some really good newspaper uh, coverage, particularly it was really good coverage from um, a Harlem-based newspaper, um, a weekly called the New York Citizen Call. And one of their journalists was um, one of the few who were allowed into the meeting with Malcolm. So there was some really good detail and, and colour in, in the reports in, in that newspaper. I also um, used a couple of Cuban newspapers, which were fantastic. There was, um, there was a weekly called Bohemia and uh, a newspaper called um, Revolution, which was the official newspaper of Castro's uh, 26th of July movement. The editor of, uh, of that newspaper was, was on the trip with, with Fidel. So that was really, really good. There's also um, a fantastic resource called um, Foreign Broadcasts of the United States, which, which had... Um, a whole series of Cuban radio broadcasts, including some broadcasts made directly from the Hotel Teresa. The other main archival source was um, US diplomatic cables uh, and um, State Department records, uh, which also often had some really good descriptions of reactions, particularly reactions back in Cuba to the events that were going on in, in New York. And then a few people have written um, about, about the trip, written um, uh, memoirs, done oral histories and there was a great there's a great little book uh, a collection of oral history reminiscences and um, primary original primary source materials uh, that was put together by Rosemary uh, Mealy which is all about the meeting between Fidel and, and Malcolm and it included quite a few interviews with the journalists who'd been there during the meeting so I was able to get some of that kind of color and flavor from from those kinds of um, 
of sources. So as, as your book details, you know, there's there's a lot going on um, after Castro arrives in Cuba. He's being greeted by different crowds. He's becoming, you know, this personality within within Harlem. He's meeting different leaders, um, either at the Hotel Teresa or, or at different missions. But all of this is is leading up to what happens on on Monday, the the twenty sixth of September, which is when Castro gives his speech to the the UN General Assembly. And uh, you actually describe this as one of the only real missteps of his entire trip. So why was that the case? Why did this speech perhaps not go down the way that, that Castro wanted it to? I mean, I think the, the short answer is that it's because it lasted for four and a half hours, uh, which is still a record for the longest speech delivered by um, a, a head of government at the, at the General Assembly. I mean, it's just extraordinarily long. Even some of Fidel's sort of most fervent admirers sort of admitted that he'd just gone on too long. Even if he'd been addressing a, a, a massive crowd of supporters in Havana, a four and a half hour speech, I think would have been um, a little bit testing. But to to be speaking to, you know, fellow heads of government and senior government um, ministers, you know, through simultaneous translation in the General Assembly um, for such a long time was really too much. And the problem with that, the length of the speech was that it made it very easy for people to simply dismiss it as a as a, as a harangue and to, to dismiss Fidel as a, I guess, as a sort of a windbag, I suppose you could put it like that. He spent a lot of time at the start of the speech giving a very detailed history of uh, America's long history of exploiting Cuba over, over sort of 60 years since its nominal independence. He also spent a lot of time complaining about the, the awful treatment that he'd received at the Shelburne Hotel. And that really took away from the heart of his message in the speech, which was to attack imperialism, to attack colonialism, and to make the point that it's, you know, one of the best points he made in his speech, one of the most effective points he made in the speech was to say, you know, it's really easy, you know, to, to raise a flag, to play a national anthem and to declare independence. But when it comes to questions of economic sovereignty, that's much harder. It's much harder to exercise real independence and to and to prevent a kind of a continuation of a kind of an economic colonialism in the aftermath of formal decolonization. And one of the ideas that really comes through in your book is Castro feels a lot more at ease, a lot more at home within Harlem than he does within the UN General Assembly. And I wonder to what extent that is coming out of this performative way in which he he centers himself in Harlem, and to what extent that is just a genuine unease with the type of formalized politics that is embodied through the UN and, and what that might say about Castro's individual relationship to other leaders uh, and to other countries moving forward into the 60s. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, um, you know, that this kind of style of politics that's practiced by the Cuban revolutionaries is, is very distinctive. You know, they, they continue to wear their olive fatigues throughout this whole period. It's a slightly anarchic um, rebellious quality to the the way that they govern. That's partly down to Fidel's character. I mean, this is someone who would just who would just turn up at a hotel kitchen at any hour and in the hopes of rustling rustling up a a meal, for example. It was very common for him to hold cabinet meetings um, at midnight. So there's a there's a sort of informality and a, and a kind of an anarchic quality to the way that the uh, the government itself. And in, in, in a very informal way to the way that the Cuban government itself is operating, which I think uh, helps to explain why, you know, he does much better, if you like, when he's in a setting like Harlem than of the of the general 
at the General Assembly. But that's also part of his appeal. It's one of the reasons why he appeals so much to the emerging new left and student generation in the United States. They, they sort of see him as a kind of a James Dean character, as, as a kind of a beatnik revolutionary. And it's part of his, that, that kind of style is, is a really important part of his, um, of his appeal. And, and of course, it contrasts hugely with, with Eisenhower, you know, who is the ultimate sort of formal politician. And you couldn't get to a more different example of a, of a, of a leader of a, of, of a country, really, than Eisenhower and, and, uh, and Castro. Mm, yeah, when I was when I was reading this book, it, I was thinking, you know, what would what would have happened if if the visit had been a year later, and it would have been, you know, the charisma of of JFK, and you, the contrast is is different. Um, you know, how much of the PR success of Castro's visit is, as you say, you know, him playing off against the the quite stodgy Eisenhower um, and presenting himself as a, as more of an organic leader. When you you mentioned one of Castro's earlier trips, um, the, the previous year, April 1959, you you described it as, as a PR triumph, but politically um, something of a disappointment. Is that same characterization equally true of, of his 1960 visit? No, I don't think it's a political disappointment. I think it's, a, it's something of a success, I think, from Fidel's point of view. I think it helps to cement this, what's going to become a really important strategic relationship with the Soviet Union. And maybe more, more important than that, I think it does help to establish the kind of global standing of Fidel. You know, observers, uh, the, the American ambassador, Philip Bonsall, the um, British ambassador, uh, Sir Herbert Marchant in, in, in Havana, they both, when, when Fidel returns to Havana at the end of September, they both observe in him a, a new confidence or a renewed determination to make Cuba a revolutionary presence on the global on the global stage, and I think that the trip to New York had helped help to deliver that, if you like. I think that the move to Harlem had been um, a PR triumph, and I think the meetings with you know the, the, the images of him meeting with with Malcolm, with Khrushchev, with Nasser, with Nehru, with Nkrumah, uh, the fact that he had spoken so forcefully at the United Nations against imperialism, uh, against colonialism. I think these things were kind of victories, if you like, in terms of the way that the Cuban revolution was going to develop over the rest of the decade on the global stage. So I think it was, um, yeah, I think it was a success in that sense. 